Hey there, it's Melissa Brunetti, and welcome to the Mind Your Own Karma podcast. Hey there, Karma crew. Thank you for joining me on another episode of Mind Your Own Karma, the Adoption Chronicles. I have a special guest today. I have a friend and fellow classmate, Regina Goldman. She is an adoptee, a somatic mindful guided imagery guide, a clarity breathwork practitioner, and intuitive reader. She was born in San Francisco and adopted by an Israeli mother and an American father. She grew up in the Bay Area and from age 16 lived abroad in Israel off and on for a total of eight years. She met both her birth parents at age 27. Regina has been on a path of personal discovery and healing since she was 13 years old. She began in her 20s to develop her psychic abilities to understand better what was going on in her relationships, and then over time turned much more toward what was happening within herself. This led her to become a certified Clarity Breathwork practitioner in 2006, after witnessing the immense healing power of this modality in her own life. In 2017, Regina became a co-owner of a spiritual shop and event space in Berkeley, California, where she co-led monthly breathwork groups, co-facilitated workshops, and saw clients. After the completion of that chapter in her life, she was then led by spirit to a healing method that she really enjoyed doing, where she received quick, powerful results for her clients. That modality was Somatic Mindful Guided Imagery, or SMGI. Regina now works with clients within these modalities in person in a healing studio in Sausalito, California, or online via Zoom. And as I mentioned, Regina and I met in the SMGI course, and when I found out she was a fellow adoptee, I had to have her on the show. And last week, I kind of posed a question that I ask a lot on the show, and that question is, can we heal from the primal wound? And I'm being honest, I've been on the fence about it, and I really didn't know how to answer that question for myself until recently. So we are going to tackle that question in today's episode. Here is my interview with Regina Goldman. So we are welcoming my friend and colleague Regina to the show today. Welcome, Regina. Welcome. Thank you. (laughs) So we are going to jump right in. And what I want to know first is about how and why you were relinquished. What do you know about that? So my birth mother was a hippie (laughs) and she was in the full-blown late 60s hippiedom and she was traveling through Europe as many hippies did and she ended up in England with her friend who she was traveling with. They went to a kibbutz office, an office that's basically a kibbutz is a communal living experience that happens in Israel and the guy who was manning the, the desk there was my birth father. And she walked in. A lot of hippies go to kibbutzes because the communal living thing is very appealing, was very appealing to them. And um, and she wanted that experience. And as soon as he saw her, he said, you go to my kibbutz and wait for me there. Basically. <laughs> <laughs> in essence, <laughs> which she did. <laughs> oh and uh, they had a six month relationship. I consider my birth father at that time more of a like a ladies man, you know, so he was not very serious and just playing around and um, and she f- completely fell in love with him. Mm-hmm. And she also got very close to his parents and really loved his family and really loved being on the kibbutz and that experience. 
And about six months into it, she decided she wanted to go to England for a little trip, and then she was going to come back. When she left everything behind, she was a guitar player. She left her guitar and a lot of her stuff, which she would never have done if she knew what she knew after that. So when she was in London, she realized she was pregnant with me, and Mm -hmm. she decided to go straight home instead of going back to Israel. And she never told Amatsia, my birth father, that he was a father, um, that he got pregnant. And because she felt very strongly that he wouldn't raise me and that he would have his parents raise me because he was really focused on his career. He went to college and he did. He became a professor. And he tells me now that that actually would have been true, but he would have preferred that than me being adopted. But anyway, that's down the road in the story. So, So she went to San Diego back home, Coronado, where she was from. In 1969, being pregnant and out of wedlock was a big no-no, especially in a very conservative environment in Coronado. It was very Republican and very military and still is today. Right. So they actually, her father sent her away to a halfway house for pregnant women in San Francisco. And this was in August 1969, which was flower child era. Yeah. In San Francisco. (laughs) That was the height of the flower child era, August 1969. I mean, there's documentaries on that. So she had a great time. Yes. And she made some really interesting connections. And But she was really deeply hurt and sad by being pushed out of the family and forced into this situation, which she did not want to do. She did not want to give me up for adoption. And she felt she didn't have any choice because she was 21 at the time. Didn't see that she was going to be able to support me properly and that the support of her family just didn't feel like it was going to work out at all. Mm. But she was deeply, you know, she tells me after I met her, I met her when I was 27. So she told me at that time and she still tells me all the time how it was so painful for her to give me up. She really did not want to do that. Yeah. So she gave birth to me at UCSF in San Francisco. And from what her story is, I was in the hospital for two weeks and she would visit me every day to feed me with a bottle. And they let her do that to keep coming every day to feed me with a bottle. Yeah. And then after two weeks, they said, okay, now that has to end. We're going to send her to a foster family in the interim of her being with her adopted family. And um, that was pretty heartbreaking for her, I can imagine, mm-hmm. considering the situation. When she'd given me up for adoption and signed the papers, she had made a request that I go to a family that was Jewish and had a connection to Israel because her time on the kibbutz was impressed upon her in such a beautiful way. And it really is such an incredible way to raise children, to be a part of. I've spent a lot of time on kibbutzes and, um, you know, it's very idyllic, great sense of belonging and connection and togetherness. and, And it's beautiful. Yeah, I went to Israel a long time ago and we went to a kibbutz and you could just feel that. Yeah, the community, that community feeling. Very strong. Yeah. You know, she always had a a softness in her heart for that. So she wanted me to hold on to the connection in some way through my adopted family. So I was adopted into a Jewish family. And my mother was from Israel, was actually born in Vienna, Austria, but was raised in Israel since she was eight years old. Um, And then she came to the States in her early 20s. So, yeah, and my dad, American from New Jersey, very American, very much from New Jersey. (laughs) Yeah. So talk about your adoptive parents a little bit. What was it like? What were they like? What was it like growing up in their household? My dad has... He's passed away in 2014, and I love him deeply today, (laughs) still today, forever. 
he had a beautiful, beautiful heart. He was a beautiful man. He was a cardiologist and a really intelligent man, really thoughtful. But he kept those thoughts to himself. He really didn't speak uh, his mind very much because my mom was a narcissist. And she came from a very damaged background. She came from a very wealthy family. And she was kept with governesses. Governess is like a fancy term for a, an au pair or a nanny and didn't see her parents much. And then there was some abusive stuff that went on that really shaped who she was. That's another story. Yeah. So from those experiences, she was unable to be empathic or to nurture. She couldn't really be an effective mother. And she was very self-absorbed, narcissism. It was really difficult for my dad, you know, and he didn't have the strength within himself to stand up to her because that would have just been hell. She would have given him hell on a regular basis until she wore him down. And then he just did what he was told, basically, you know, at all times. And it was all about her. So being raised in that kind of environment, you know, my dad was emotionally really present with me until I was about five or six years old. And then that was it. He just completely shut down and totally retreated into himself. And I was really alone. I have a brother who is five years older than me, who just kind of went through it as well, but he didn't want any connection with me or relationship. He was really focused on himself. And I think he took that from my mom. Uh, and I think I took after more of my dad, to be honest, sort of this wounded, you know, empath. <laughs> and my brother is just kind of doing his thing and doesn't really want to, you know. And my brother has a really beautiful heart, though, as well. He learned that from my dad. He, he got that, which is, thank God. Um, so he has both aspects. And I think I did, too. I must, I must have. <laughs> Is your brother adopted as well? Oh, my brother's not adopted. My mom had hysterectomy after having my brother, and they still wanted a child. So she had to do that for medical reasons. Okay. She had to. Yeah. yeah. So how was that growing up? Did you feel different from your brother? Did they treat him different since he was biological? The only difference I noticed was that they treated him differently because he was male and I was female. Mm. That's the biggest difference I noticed. And I always felt that there was no difference between us in terms of how my parents loved us or related to us. You know, over time, what I realized it really was the impact of being a, a woman because my mother felt very jealous of me and jealous of my relationship with my dad, where she didn't have that with my brother. And I, in a lot of ways, felt closer to my dad than she did. Mm. You know, I hear that you know? so much in the adoptee community. Really? How the adoptive mom was jealous of the relationship of the daughter and the adoptive father. That is not the first time I've heard that. Wow. Many times, That's many times. Time. I, I don't know a lot about the adopted world. Actually. Yeah. I, I don't know why that is, but that's interesting that you say that because I've heard it at least three times. Wow. That's interesting. Yeah. To hear that. Yeah. Um, well, I mean, it made sense in my family because my mother's very insecure and she was been jealous of me my whole life. My, my mom is in relationship much more of an older, jealous sister than actually a mother. And she's been competing with me, you know, in that way and being jealous of me my whole life. And it never made sense to me when I was a kid because I always expected her to act like a mother, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, How old did, were you when you kind of realized that, do you think? It's funny because the first thing that comes to mind is age 20, started to realize some things. The first thing I realized is that I'm actually a good person, something I didn't know until then. Mm -hmm. I don't get told that I wasn't a good person and everything was my fault and that I'm a mess and a loser and, and I'm basically screwed up, you know? Yeah. And I realized, wow, I'm actually a good person. 
wow, took another <laughs> 10 years to realize that most of the stuff that my mother told me had nothing to do with me and was really about her. Yeah. To really get that took me another 10 years, you know, to really understand the level of jealousy that I was experiencing with her probably took another, probably in my mid thirties, I really started to really get it in my full maturity. So I think once I was 40, I was really like, okay, I'm an adult. <laughs> I guess I'm empowered in my body. I'm me. Yeah. Like I feel. yeah. But it took me a long time to get there. It was a result of how I was raised, you know, um, really dealt with really big issues of self-esteem and self-worth. Mm-hmm. I'm not good enough. I'm not worthy. Were my two main core limiting beliefs. Even you get down to it, I'm not lovable, you know? Yeah, those issues really catapulted me into focusing completely on healing myself because otherwise it was just too uncomfortable to live in this body. Yeah. So it sounds like you did find your biological family. How did you go about finding them? That's an interesting story. When I was 26, I just wanted to know what it meant to be biologically connected to somebody. I had no idea what that was. I saw it around me, but I didn't understand it for myself. I wasn't really looking for another mother or father at all. I wasn't looking for another family. And just very powerful curiosity. What does that mean to be biologically connected to somebody? You know, what are those traits? What's me? What's them? And how does that relate to my adopted family? And maybe to bring some understanding, you know? Definitely. So I went to the adoption agency to see if they had any information for me. And the lady. So what year is this approximately? um, What year? Yeah. So here, I'll tell you. So 2000. I mean, was there internet and Facebook? No. And, yeah. Because <laughs> <laughs> oh, so I had to hire a detective. This was early as well, 1990s. So. Me too. Okay, got it. Exactly. Like 92, 93, 94. If I'm correct. I can yeah, that's about when I searched too. Yeah. That's oh, that's interesting. When I was 26 and I'm 53. So, you know, that was that many years ago. Yeah. I went to the adoption agency. The lady said, I'm sorry, we, your birth mom didn't put a note in your case file that said that we could contact her. So I can't yeah. help you with that. But here's a list of 30 or 40 private investigators, and maybe they can help you. She gave me a long list. Oh, dang. Like, okay. So I just kind of went down the list and picked one out of all these people. I called her up and... It just turned out to be, and I don't, nothing's coincidental in my world. I'm very aware of that, but it just happened to be, which was not happened to be at all. It was totally meant to be that this one investigator that I chose had a five-year working relationship with the lady of the adoption agency. And she would call her up and narrow it down to one or two or three lists of people. And she would just read off the names over the phone. And the adoption agent would just say, nope, 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 nope. And then when she got to the correct name, she simply would just be silent. Uh-huh. That's how they had their ways to share information is that she just wouldn't say it all. I wonder if we went through the same person. This is weird. Anyway. Do you know similar <laughs> happened in that way? I think so, because the lady that I went through, her agency was called the Snoop Sisters. And I think it was two ladies, but they had connections as well somehow. And I don't know what the codes were or anything like that, but I know that they had connections there and was able to get information to me very quickly, as well as my original birth certificate somehow. Oh, wow. Did you meet your birth family? Mm -hmm. Yeah. (laughs) So go ahead. So, so she got names. She found her. She found her. So she, the lady at the agency confirmed it. Yes, that's her without saying anything. 
So she called me up and she said, I have your mother's address and her phone number and her name. And here it is. And I was like, whoa. I'm getting the chills. (laughs) All right. So um, I called her up and it was an answering machine, the old kind of answering machine where you had to go home to actually hear your message, right? Right. And push a button on a machine. And um, I said on the message, I just said, my name is Reggie. I'm calling about a personal matter. Please call me back. And I left my phone number. So um, that evening I got a call back and the woman on the phone said, "Um, I know exactly who you are. I named you Reggie. You're my daughter. Oh my gosh. And I, I was like, what? That's crazy. Getting the chills again. <laughs> How could you possibly know that? Right. And she said, um, I named you Reggie. And I said, but I've been Nareet, the name that my adopted mom gave me my whole life until I was 15. Nobody ever told me anything about another name. And when I was 15 years old, I had this overwhelming absolute need to go through my adopted mom's desk, every single paper at her desk, which I had never done before. And I had no interest in ever doing it again. But when I was 15, I was obsessively like, I have to do this right now. Yeah. And I went through every paper at her desk and I found a letter from my foster mother who I'd been with for the first six weeks of my life before I was handed over to my adopted parents. And it said in that letter, um, we loved having Regina. Regina was such a beautiful baby. We hope the best for Regina. La, 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 la. Right. Mm. And I was like, Regina? And and, in that moment, I said, no, my name is Reggie. Wow. And I changed my name in that moment right there. That was it. And I was Reggie until one year ago. And then another really weird thing happened. And I changed my name to Regina. And I've been Regina for the last year and I will be for the rest of my life. Do you want me to relate to that weird thing that happened? Yeah. <laughs> I love all that woo-woo weird stuff, thing. you know. Another really <laughs> interesting, interesting thing, right? I had just uh, left my husband and I was about to move from one city to another and change my whole life completely, which is what has been happening over the last year. I feel like I've stepped onto a higher timeline, upgraded absolutely everything about who I am and where I'm moving, where I'm going. Mm. Um, And that's actually exactly what happened. But I was driving in my car shortly after I had made the decision that I'm firmly, yeah, I'm leaving him. And I heard a voice in my head. It said, you need to change your name to Narit or Regina from Reggie. Not that you need to change your name from Narit to Regina. Immediately, I said out loud in the car, Regina. I was like, what the hell was that? I just heard a voice in my head and I have an absolute knowing in my heart that that's what I'm doing. I'm changing my name to Regina. Wow. But, well, that was weird. Uh, one week later, I was in a psychic session with a friend of mine. She's a really outrageous psychic. She does something called Akashic record reading mm-hmm. and she was in the Akashic records uh, reading. <laughs> and the very first thing she said in that session was, Oh, your guides tell me that you need to change your name to Narit or Regina. And I said, I already did that. It already happened one week ago. I said, that's, that's freaking me out, you know? Yeah. Like, and I said, who was that voice? She said, that was your guide, you know, your spirit mm. guide. And I was like, whoa, that was very audible. Do you know why you got, <laughs> why they said to that she needed to change her name? Do you have any? Because the frequency, the frequency of that name, each letter holds a number and each number holds a frequency. Mm. Instead of saying it out loud. 
And I could feel it. People calling me Reggie. Over the years, I started to notice the Reggie was keeping me small. Like something about the frequency of that name. Huh. It's like every every letter has its own sound. And every sound holds an octave or frequency or, you know. Mm-hmm. And, and that frequency has an effect on the things around you. Yes. So if people keep using the same sound in relationship to you, then you start to mold to that sound. You start to come into resonance with mm-hmm. that. I could feel that it was, it hadn't been me for a long time, like at least 10 years. Every time somebody said it, I, just, I always felt this kind of, uh, like, uh, yeah. like it was putting me down, you know, like mm-hmm. not putting me down in a personal way, but just kind of, it was lower than who I really am. It wasn't me anymore. Yeah. So Regina felt like, oh, it was something I could expand into. Like it was something I could Exactly. Expand into. Felt good. Yeah. Feeling. It's a feeling. It's a frequency. It's a resonance. Yeah. Yeah. So how'd you find your dad then? Your biological dad. So when I found my birth mom, uh, thanks for keeping me on track. (laughs) That's a lot of story. That's my job. I found my birth mom. (laughs) Um, She, um, she said, I know where to, I, I know how to find your birth dad. So she, which did, she called my paternal grandfather, his father, and he was still alive, living at the kibbutz. And she called him. His name was Myram, a beautiful human soul. I love him so deeply. He died. Mm-hmm. Um, but I got to meet him. He's a very special man. I feel very emotional about that, actually. Mm-hmm. She got Myram on the phone. And Myram says, Stephanie, we haven't heard from you in 27 years. How are you? Why did you suddenly leave? I didn't know where, what happened. Blah, blah, blah. Left everything. Yeah. And he's like, oh my God, Stephanie, I love you. And Stephanie said, I love you too, you know? And, and she said, listen, I, I really need to contact Amatsia. Do you have his phone number? He's like, of course. And so she gives him the phone number and she calls up Amatsia and Amatsia's like, Stephanie, whatever happened to you? You just disappeared. Wow. And she said, well, um, I'd never told you this, but the reason I disappeared was because I got pregnant and I had a child and she's your child. You have a daughter. And he flipped. He was so angry. Oh, so angry at her that she didn't tell him and that he didn't have the choice of whether or not he could, his family or him or whoever to raise me. Right. Yeah. So upset. But then he eventually calmed down, but he's like, I want to talk to her immediately. I want to talk to her right away. And so she got me in contact with him and he was really nervous. Like I talked to him on the phone and he was in Israel, Haifa, where he lives. And I could tell the first thing I noticed right away was that he'd spent all of his life focused on his career. He'd gotten, become very successful in his career. He was a Saddam Hussein expert. He was the chairman of the Middle East. Middle Eastern Studies at Haifa University as a professor. Mm. And also he had worked for, you know, three administrations in U.S., the Bush, the Clinton, um, the Obama administration, you know, worked very closely with a lot of their top generals, helping them with issues in Iraq, and especially after the Iraq war, how to restructure and rebuild Iraq, and also during the war, how to handle things because he was a Iraq Saddam Hussein expert. Mm. Well, he'd written a number of books. He was world renowned right. all over the world. And so I I visited him at the Institute of Peace and stayed with him in DC a couple of times and was 
privy to some of those <laughs> meetings, which were really interesting. That's a whole other subject. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, um, so he spent all of his life working on his career, and but none of that time had really developed himself as a human being. So I could tell right away that he was pretty shallow, kind of a womanizer, <laughs> not kind. Um, and um, but he had a really good heart, and he's a good man. He's a good man. He was raised by good parents in a good environment, solid, you know, like he just wasn't very developed within himself, you know, as a human. And he felt, he said he felt a little intimidated by me because he could feel that I was way more developed than him just because I, you know, I focused on that so much, uh, right? <laughs> you know, cause I was so much pain. I kind of had yeah. to as an adult, um, as a young adult at that, but hopefully 27 at that point. So, you know, yeah. Anyway, but I'd done uh, quite a bit up until that point for myself. So do you have any biological siblings from either parent? So neither of them ever had kids. And at that point, neither of them had been married either. Mm-hmm. He had a girlfriend of 18 years that he has married since then. But I do have cousins. Um, so his sister, her name is Kulchevet. And when I, I talked to him on the phone, he said, I want you to come to Israel immediately and, mm. and meet me and my family. And I said, well, that's really interesting because less than two weeks ago, I had made the decision to move to Israel permanently. Oh, wow. Aliyah. And Aliyah is when a Jew returns to Israel. I wasn't doing it as a Jew. I just felt that um, things had happened in my life. Before I met my birth father, before I met my birth mother, this all happened within a week. Okay. Before this week happened, when I got the phone number of my birth mom and this whole series of events unfolded, like one or two weeks before that, I had made the decision that I want to go back to Israel. I want to live there permanently. I had been to high school there for two years living there. I'd been to Tel Aviv University for a year and eight years had passed. And I was like, I had this overwhelming knowing that I absolutely have to go and I need to go now. And I was like, whoa, I sold all of my stuff within nine days. And then I was in Israel. Oh my gosh. (laughs) And this was how in touch I was with myself at that time in my knowing that like absolute, like there's no question and I have no idea what's ahead of me. I just know that I'm supposed to do this and I'm going to be taken care of. Like, I just kind of knew it. And it was absolutely more than true. It was ridiculous, honestly. Yeah. So within a week or two weeks of that of that decision and that uh, unfoldment, uh, the reason why it happened within nine days, and I remember nine days is because my birth father called me and we had that conversation. We talked. He said, you need to come to Israel. And he sent me a ticket to Israel to come within that nine-day period. He's like, you're coming now. And I was like, whoa, I'm actually moving to Israel. And I just made that decision. I mean, that's weird. Um <laughs> so I got on the plane, I went to Israel, and um, I sold everything in one weekend and packed everything up and just closed everything off, and my life was over in the United States, period. I got on there, I put everything in storage, because I knew I was going to come back and take care of some last things before I made that final move. So I put everything in storage, and I just took some basic stuff. Actually, I took a lot of stuff, because I knew I was moving there. I took as much mm-hmm. as I could get on the airplane. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I remember two huge bags, and so anyway... And some other stuff in, in storage. <laughs> a lot of details. So I get on the airplane. I fly to Tel Aviv. And I get off the airplane. And I'm going through customs. And right after I go through customs, I'm walking out. And nobody's allowed to go in there from outside. Only the people who are coming in off the airplane. You get it to your baggage. And then you walk out. And then all the people are out there that are waiting. Right. Yes. yes. But because he was kind of high up in his realm of political connections, the head of security at Tel Aviv Airport was his student, used to be his student. <laughs> university. And because he had that connection in Israel, it's all about connections. 
He was able to bring himself and a professional videographer through all the way to where you show the passport and he's waiting right there for me to record me walking through the stores. (laughs) Oh my God. Record the whole thing. And I was like, oh, I'm a little overwhelmed, you know? Uh, And he's like, hello, my God. I'm like, okay. And um, hello. And and he took me through and got my bags and took me then. And we got past all that stuff where all the people were waiting. And there's my aunt, my grandfather, and his uh, his girlfriend, soon to be wife. There's my grand, my aunt, just bawling, like bawling. <laughs> <laughs> my grandfather tears oh. right now, and I'm just like, oh my god. It was very intense and emotional. They took me to their kibbutz, uh, where my birth mom met my birth father, and my grandparents still live there. Mm. And because the kibbutz is such a tight community, um, we went to the Herochel. Herochel is the dining room. It's a communal dining room where everybody comes for lunch. Usually people eat in their own homes for dinner, but for breakfast and lunch, they all eat together in a big dining room. And they took me immediately to the dining room to meet over 200 people (laughs) who considered me family because they're so, you know, they're so tight knit as a community. And I mean, talk about overwhelm, you know, I was just like, what? Yeah. Everybody's like, rushing in to meet me and I'm like oh my god and then they had a party at my grandfather's house with all the closer you know the cousins and everybody came from all over Israel to meet me I'm just like whoa shit you know yeah crazy and then uh I stayed overnight there with my grandfather and all those people and the next morning we drove up to Haifa and my birth dad had uh, arranged a boat to go out on the Kinneret, uh, which is uh, the Sea of Galilee, and, and Tiberia, which is Tiberias, and close to Haifa. And so they rented a boat, and they invited all of his colleagues, all the professors, and their wives, and their families, and all the people he knew in Haifa, and literally packed them all on that boat. And we went out and had a get-to-know Reggie <laughs> a boat ride, you know? <laughs> about that was that um you know halfway through the boat ride he, there was a microphone and music playing you know in Israel people sing together and they all started singing songs together and there was just this beautiful feeling of connection and homecoming I feel so emotional and I, you know there's something very very special about the Israeli culture something very special there's a sense of belonging you never feel alone I never, in the eight years that I lived in Israel total, I never once felt alone, ever. There's a sense of belonging to that and the culture, the people. And, you know, and just like, just singing your singing from your heart, singing these Israeli songs that have a lot of meaning to them and were familiar to me because I was raised by an Israeli mom. Yeah, so that's an interesting piece is that uh, my adopted family, my birth mother raised in Israel, my father American. My birth family, my birth father, Israeli, raised in Israel, my adopted mom, American. Mm. So it was interwoven in both those families, this deep connection to this country and to Israel. Yeah, I didn't think I was going to get emotional about the boat ride. (laughs) (laughs) Well, it's great to hear a positive reunion story because there isn't many. So that is so great to hear. And did it continue? You still have good relationship with both biological parents? Yeah, absolutely. My birth father, I've been many years and I don't feel as connected to him um, because he's far. I think I'd be more connected if I was living in Israel. I really, really, really love his sister, my aunt. Um, You know, she was there crying her brains out when I showed up that first day at the airport. And, um, 
and she really loved me, mm-hmm. you know? I really love her. I went back to Israel after 25 years. I'd been there. I went back when I turned 50, three years ago, almost four years ago. And that love was as still as strong as the first day I met her. So why did you end up leaving? Because you were going to live there. So why did you end up coming so back? So I lived there for three and a half years. That last, that second time when I went back when my 27, I lived there for three and a half years and I had the most incredible time. And then I started to realize that um, if I'm going to study the things that are really important to me, I'm not going to be able to do it in Israel. Israel's a really small country mm-hmm. and, you know, they have great universities, but what I wanted to learn was, and my birth father was really trying to get me to go to Haifa University because I could have done it for free because he was, you know, a professor. Yeah. And he couldn't figure out why I didn't do it. He still to this day doesn't understand that. But I understood completely. And that's because what I wanted to study was really not something you could find in university. What I wanted to do, at first I thought it was psychology, like I want to be a psychologist. And mm-hmm. I wanted something, study something called psychosynthesis. And the best place to study that on the planet is in England, in London. They have the best psychosynthesis program. So I went to London and I went to three different schools and I um, talked to everybody and got all the information. And then I went back to Israel and I was like, it's not it. Mm. it's It's too dry. It's too mental. I need to do something that's much closer to like uh, me, who I am, more me. And before I'd moved to Israel, I'd been studying at the Berkeley Psychic Institute and I'd done some classes and I was so into it. So I remembered that and I said, you know what, I need to go back there and complete a certification. Like I need to do everything they've got. So I actually moved back to California, moved back to Berkeley. I ended up spending a total of five years at the Berkeley Psychic Institute and did their clairvoyant program. And I... I discovered a lot about myself and a lot about people and a lot about what's going on on the inner world and how things work on a spirit level. Mm. And that started opening doors in a really big way for me. Yeah. On that level. Yeah. So you said, I realized I was blocking universal or spirit support with the negative beliefs that were running my life. And I think everyone has negative and limiting beliefs, but adoptees seem to have a lot of the similar ones in common. So what limiting beliefs or personal issues did you see in yourself? Well, the, the core limiting belief is that I'm not worthy and that I'm not good enough. Those were the two that were plaguing me my whole, you know, for a long time. Not so much anymore, which is really nice. There's still echoes of it, but I walk through it and then it just falls apart completely, which is really nice. And then maybe I'm not lovable. Yeah. Did that come from your adoptive mom? Or do you think subconsciously, because you were relinquished, that you kind of feel like, well, my own birth mother didn't want me. So I know a lot of adoptees feel that way. Did you ever? Well, it's interesting, Melissa, because up until just very recently, I was absolutely certain it came from my adopted family. But I just recently had an SMGI session with Michelle, who's in class with mm-hmm. us, actually. And for those people who watching this podcast don't know this, Melissa and I are both in a class. It's my second go around. I'm getting licensed. And last year I was certified. Mm-hmm. I think yeah. it's your first time, Melissa, yep. you're being certified this year. It's called Somatic Mindful Guided Imagery, and we're becoming guides. Um, I'm already a guide. I already see clients. And so Michelle is from that class last year, too. And she's also in this class this year as well, getting licensed we did an incredible session. This was just a few weeks ago or a month ago or something. 
And when I was in hypnosis, which is basically what happens is in the session, you take people down into hypnosis, into the subconscious level. And from there, you access your inner wisdom or deeper subconscious knowings and understandings and issues that have been living there, running you, running your life. And from that deeper level, uh, my inner wisdom said very clearly that I need to be taken back in utero at two months in utero before I was born, because at two months old, I started taking on all the beliefs that my birth mother Mm. believed about herself at that time started impacting me at two months old in utero Yeah, before I was born and that I took it on. And because I had no understanding uh, that she was separate from me, I believed hundred percent that she is me and I, and I am her, we are one. And that is absolutely true for infants and small children. They don't understand they're separate from the, the mother, right? Mm-hmm. So they take it all on as their own, right? So, and I started listing off all this stuff that I had, and I was like, and I started having these aha moments, you know, like, whoa, I thought all this time, some of it is definitely from my upbringing, mm-hmm. but I started internalizing my birth mother's issues and, and she internalized that stuff from her family. And by the way, my birth mother was adopted as well. Oh, wow. So she took on a lot of stuff from her birth family and her adopted family. I took stuff on from my birth mother and her adopted family, not so much from my birth father. It was really my birth mother. I started to, I was going to say ingest, but no, like it was literally like a blueprint that was being Mm -hmm. placed within me. That was her. And I was living as though I am her. So low self-esteem was a really big one. Something's wrong with me. I'm not good enough. Nobody loves me. I mean, I just started listing this stuff off. Yeah. And in that session, I started to really address that stuff on a deeper level and start clearing away that clutter. Yeah. Mine that I've been living through, like a, a, a veil that I've been living through that, you know? The fog, the adoption fog. <laughs> exactly. And, and that's interesting. And, 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 you know, before we started doing this interview, you mentioned adoption fog. And I was like, what the heck is that? I've never heard of that. Yeah. And then you described it as like, oh, shoot, that's exactly what happened. But I just realized recently. Yeah. I just realized that. So interesting. Um, Yeah. What's incredible is the work that I'm doing and that you're studying right now is so helpful. (laughs) Not only unearthing that stuff, but clearing it out. Yeah, definitely. Reintegrating the parts of us that we neglected and pushed away and disowned. Yeah. For survival purposes. The wholeness. Yeah. I'm like the miracle. It's actually, it's actually a miracle. Yeah. So I had a interesting uh, session with Amy Anna uh, on Wednesday night because I always ask people. She's somebody in our class, by the way. Yes. I always ask people on the podcast, do you believe that we can heal from the primal wound? And probably 85% of the time they say no. To be honest, I was on the fence about it. I did not know. I did not know if you could heal from the primal wound, but I've been immersed in the adoptee community so much lately. And I just see this deep hurting and physical pain and people not knowing where it's coming from, what it's connected to. And so when I heard about SMGI, I was like, oh my God, if there's an answer, this is it, right? What we're 10, 11 weeks into the class, I still couldn't answer the question, you know? So Amy Anna guided me last Wednesday and and I knew all this stuff was going to come up and I wasn't looking forward to, it, to be honest, but I knew I had to go there. Right. 
So I was having this pain in my shoulder, which I have all the time. And it was just screaming. And so she's like, okay, follow the pain, right? So I follow it. He was connected to. And it was a dark black room with a light shining down on an empty cradle. An empty what? Grail? And cradle. I didn't even want to tell her that's what I saw because I knew if I told her, then here, we're going to go, right? We're going to open this crazy, who knows what. So anyway, I'm like, I know I have to, I have to. So I told her and now I can honestly say that, yes, you can heal from the primal wound with SMGI, a hundred percent, a hundred percent. And that's huge because this community needs this so badly, so, so badly. And I think from what I see in the adoptee community is they trust other adoptees. You know, they're always looking for a therapist that's adopted or, you know, yeah. So it's huge that we're doing this because this community needs us and SMGI, these guides, they need it. So if you are an adoptee, (laughs) we're going to have Regina's info all in the uh, show notes and stuff. But yeah, I can totally say that I do believe that you can heal from it. I mean, what's really going on when you are working with SMGI with somatic mindful guided imagery is that you're accessing your subconscious and everything that's running you, all your core limiting beliefs, all of the old stories that you've internalized and made real into your world live there. And it's only in the subconscious that they can be released and reintegrated or just removed, let go of if it's not yours to begin with, you know, and if it's yours. You know, we talk to those parts of you, those child parts of you, young adult parts of you that made decisions about those, made decisions about yourself based on those beliefs. And we have conversation with those parts and then we invite them to come back home and reintegrate. And then what happens from that is you start to see subtle changes over time that affect everything. And what things that used to hold you back or the feelings that used to plague you are just, it's kind of like wisps of fog that just kind of, you, you, you can feel the echo of them, but as soon as you focus on them, they're gone. You're yeah. feeling it anymore. Yeah. It's not there anymore. And, and, yeah. and you're able to actually move forward in your life. Yeah. I have so many miracle stories. Yeah. Tell us some. <laughs> Personal or otherwise. Just to put this out there, I also started out doing breath work, clarity breath work, and the breathing. And I just did my first group in Marin yesterday, and it was hugely successful and powerful. Successful in the sense that what they came for, they they got what they came for. For me, that's mm. hugely successful, very powerful. Um, yeah. And it works in the subconscious as well. It's very similar to SMGI. The difference with SMGI is that it's really easy to do. It's much easier. It's actually enjoyable. It's fun (laughs) for me and for the client. It might not be fun to see that stuff, but the process is really interesting. And it's just a lighter, easier way of getting stuff done. There's, you know, there's, there's the right time to do breath work and there's the right time to do SMGI. Um, And before I go into the benefits and something, what I've seen with some of my clients, what I want to say about that is, SMGI is kind of like this, my main thing. What I've realized is that is the thing that really impacts and affects people, the majority of the people that I work with the best. 
And then I like to pull out breath work when other stuff is a little bit more difficult to get to or kind of continues. Mm-hmm. Then we go into that deeper piece. But as an individual session with SMGI, I like to set them up ideally in three, six or nine session series because that's when you see the best results. What I did in one session or basically three sessions, it would have taken me six months to a year in therapy to get to that. And it took three sessions. And there's no guarantee (laughs) in talk therapy that you're actually going to resolve that. I think talk therapy is really, really wonderful to get the ball rolling. Yeah. But for long-term success, in my opinion, and it's just, it's my experience. Just keep that in mind. This is my experience. Mm-hmm. And I've seen it being other people's experience as well, but I can only speak for myself. Talk therapy is very helpful, but I've seen people in therapy for 15 years and they're still telling the same stories, going over the same material over and over and over. And they're not seeing a lot of movement forward yeah. mm-hmm. where just in one session, you can see things starting to move. Yeah. In three sessions, you definitely see something moving, but there's no guarantee. Every single person is different and they all go at their own pace. Yeah. It's a much shorter window than I have noticed and experienced with people and with myself with talk therapy. Yeah. I know I'm not saying that my primal wound is totally healed, but it's opened that door to all those little pieces that either I'm going to have to clear or integrate. So I know there's more coming. But just having that one experience, like I said, that would have taken me forever in therapy if I even got to that point to do that in three sessions to to have that experience was really life-changing and helped me realize that it is possible. Yeah. I've not only seen that it's possible, but I've seen miracles and I call them miracles. They're not really miracles, honestly, when you really break it down. Because when you understand how the psyche works and that everything is stored in the subconscious and most of the stuff that's going on in our lives, we're not even aware of what's the motivating factors of it occurring and unfolding. But when you go into the subconscious, it all becomes very, very clear and you're able to actually clear away what's not yours, integrate the parts that are yours in a healthy way. So that's going to benefit you and help you move forward in your life. So I'm going to talk about three clients that I've had over this last year, and I'm just going to give them fake names yeah, (laughs) Yeah, just to maintain their privacy. Right. Two of these people, I'm going to call them Joseph and Jennifer. Okay. So Joseph and Jennifer, they were actually referred to me by the teacher, our teacher, Gina, Gina Vance. She said, listen, they can't afford the sessions that I do because I've been doing it a long time and I charge a good amount for that but they're not able to do that. Could you possibly help them? You know, it's just kind of like for practice. I said, Mm -hmm. absolutely. I'd love to do that. So I actually started seeing them for free. And I said, okay, I'll do three sessions with each of you. And Joseph, I ended up actually doing six sessions and I did them all for free. And I, and after we did three, I said, let's do another three because it was really unfolding. It was incredible. I said, let's just keep going, you know? And then with Jennifer, I'm on my 17th session with her. She's about to do her 18th session. She turned into a pain client because she was getting so much out of the work. Mm. Okay, I'm just reverting. I'm going to start paying you. And I was like, great. (laughs) (laughs) So um, that's awesome. So Joseph, he was dealing with long-term depression. He'd never seen a therapist, never got any help for any of this stuff going on with him. He'd been happy since he was five years old and he never had any relief at all from it depression. He wanted to love himself more. And I'm looking down at my notes just to make sure I'm getting it right. He wanted to take better care of himself. 
He wanted to have greater willpower and self-discipline. But most importantly, he wanted to love himself more and clear this depression that he was feeling. And he just couldn't shake it. It affected every area of his life. It's basically his whole life, you know. So after doing six sessions, we started to see some real changes after three. But after six sessions, um, he started to experience a lot of ups in his life, which he had never experienced. That was his term, a lot of ups. He never had that happen before. He was actually having good feelings. Mm. For the first time in his life, good feelings, like ongoingly good feelings. I mean, that's a really big deal. That's huge. Yeah. He felt like he was more in touch with himself for the first time in his life. He was feeling like he was good enough. That's a big one because that, you know, I'm not good enough core belief can, you know, be really difficult to live with. Yeah. I can attest to that. He was feeling positive for the first time about his future. So he told me about this little example, like, he was at work and he was standing next to a coworker. And he always felt less than everybody else around him all the time. He noticed for the first time, he's standing next to his coworker. And he started noticing he felt like he was his equal, like he felt really comfortable in his body and he felt like a total equal to his coworker. And like, we're the same, you know, we're on the same level. And he's like, I've never had that experience before. I've always felt less than everyone else around me. And I was like, yes. And that's possible at six sessions. So crazy. That's incredible. It's incredible. He dropped out after that. He kind of went back into some old patterning and I tried to pull him back in, not pull him, but encourage him to come back because I know I knew there was more to go for him. Everybody's different. Yeah. But he he never went made it back. And that happens sometimes. People are willing to go so far and then they stop. But if you're willing to just keep going, there's so much that can happen. Yeah. So much possibility that can happen. Real healing. So for example, Jennifer, she was also one of those people that was referred to me by Gina who couldn't afford the sessions. So since she was 26 years old, she had been dealing with chronic illnesses. And as a result of that, she wasn't able to do most of the things that other people can do. And as a result, she fell into a great deal of depression. She felt a lot of anger, a lot of frustration, and she missed out on a lot of life. Yeah. And it wasn't just her chronic illness. It was the beliefs that she was holding about herself in regards to that, but also separate from that too. And also that led to that reasons for the chronic illness. You know, I'm a firm believer that some illnesses are genetic and some illnesses are self-created and some illnesses are environmental. There's a variety of reasons for illnesses, but at the end of the day, we're so powerful. Yeah. As a soul that honestly, we can heal just about anything. I mean, we can heal anything. That's the truth. Yeah. Regardless of where these things came from. So Jennifer, so she was searching for answers with no results for over 30 years. She's in her early, just about to be 60, 26. That's a long 30 Mm -hmm. years. That's a long time. Yeah. A long, long time. And she'd been to therapists with no real results and she was desperate. She didn't know what else to do. She didn't want to live in her body anymore. She wasn't going to consider off, you know, being like that. Yeah. She was not doing that, but she just didn't, she was up against a wall. You know, she didn't know what else to do. She was really having a very hard time. Sick and tired of being sick and tired. Really hard. <laughs> yeah. So she was unable to move forward in her life. She was feeling hopeless and helpless for a long time. Like I said, therapy was no real results. And she went from that after 17 sessions. To doing really well, ongoingly for the first time, for the first time, 
Not only was she experiencing deep feelings of wholeness within herself ongoingly, no more depression, no more feeling of stuckness. She's, like I said, starting to feel whole within herself for the first time. And not only that, but some really interesting byproducts were happening. She was starting to experience synchronicities in her life going off Mm. the charts. Like she connected in with aspects of herself that started to create a ripple effect in her outer world. And she started to see herself, you know, it's funny. It's like people wonder, what does it mean to be in wholeness with yourself? Well, it means to feel peaceful to feel good ongoingly, to be okay with yourself. But more, much more than that, it's like a wholeness is like a deep sense of well-being. Connecting to your essence and your purpose. and What it feels like. That's the word. Yeah. It feels like well-being. Everything. Mm. Like I'm okay. I'm at peace with myself. Yeah. And so the more that she started to feel that ongoingly, these synchronicities started to really kick up. And it was becoming ridiculous. She was sending them to me weekly. <laughs> I was just blown away. It's awesome. And eventually I started to realize that she might be surpassing me in my life. <laughs> <laughs> I'm like, wow, that's um, and not that I'm so far ahead, but that's amazing to see somebody who was stuck for so long within herself and feeling really helpless and hopeless to uh, just watch her just breeze right by me, you know, like where I am in my own growth, you know, and, and I've done a lot of work. Yeah. And I'm really amazed. She also attracted into her life a man that adored her and cherished her and was healthy for her. That was a first mm. in her life as well. That's a big deal. Wow. And she's still with him. So this directly relates to how she now feels about herself after clearing away all that old inner clutter that wasn't hers to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, and also healing aspects of herself from her childhood, right, in her subconscious at the root level. So the more sessions she did, the more miracles that unfolded in her life. And now she's feeling incredibly empowered by these changes. And she's feeling not only hopeful, but super excited about her future. And, you know, she's still working on different aspects, but the core is becoming really smoothed out, flowing, right? And peaceful. And these feelings, good feelings just keep bubbling up in her. You know, I mean, this is a really... This is a really beautiful thing yeah. to witness that and to share that journey with her, you know? Right. So this woman, I'm going to call her Suzanne, and she had been living in her body and with a sense of fight and flight her whole life. She's in her early 30s. She'd experienced sexual abuse as a young mm-hmm. child, two years old. As a result, she was wired for stress, is the way she describes it, and had really low self-esteem, was looking to men to make herself feel like she's good enough as a result of some of those issues. And she went through a lot. And she, through just doing eight sessions with me, I say just because there was a lot of shifting there, she was able to release a fear that she'd been living from. She changed the perspective of how she felt about herself. She completely felt like she was worthy, worthy of love, consideration, attention, of affection. She came into self-acceptance. I mean, that's a lot of stuff to happen in seven sessions. Yeah. And she became peaceful with herself. Now, this is like a really ongoing thing. And that's what we all desire on a deep level is to be in peace with ourselves. Mm. And she says now she walks through the world and when she feels fear, when she feels that stress or anxiety rising, it's the same thing like I described. It's like a, it's like a sheath that just touches you. It's like an echo, but it just falls. See it? You feel it for a moment, then it just, just drops away and it's just not there anymore. Yeah. And she says they, it just falls away with grace, is her word. Mm, wow. I'm going to continue to call these miracles. 
Yeah. Even though I, I know they're not active it, miracles, but they feel like it feels. Yeah. They feel like it is definitely. So you want me to, did you say, yeah. Yeah. So anyone that wants to contact you, how do they do that? Do you do discovery calls? Yes, I do. How can people find you? I have a beautiful new website that I've just finished and polished off and I'm really loving it. Um, and you can find everything you need there and you can get my information, find out more about the things that I've mentioned. I also do intuitive readings, psychic readings with people, but the main body of what I do is the SMGI and the breath work, clarity breath work. So my website is soul sanctuary with Regina.com. And if you want to email me at soul sanctuary with Regina at gmail.com. Perfect. And we'll have those links in the show notes for anyone that wants to contact you. And I'm also on Facebook as well. Same name. So it's Facebook slash soul sanctuary with Regina. Okay, perfect. We'll have all that in the show notes. Well, thank you so much for coming on today, Regina. Thank you so much for having me. I've never actually been you know, interviewed about my adoption story and um, it made me very emotional and reminiscent about some of the really beautiful pieces. And thank you so much, Melissa. I really appreciate that. I hope you enjoyed this episode today with Regina and I. And if anyone is struggling, you don't have to be an adoptee to do SMGI. Anyone can benefit from it. And if you are interested in getting a hold of me or Regina, our links are in the show notes. If you have any questions, please reach out to us. We would be happy to talk to you. I was so happy to hear a positive reunion story. It is possible. And I just loved hearing her story about the airport and seeing her dad, her biological father for the first time and how his family reacted. It was just so, I I got the chills the whole time I was interviewing her on everything she was saying. I just kept getting the chills. Such a great story. Thank you so much, Regina, for coming on and sharing your story and helping educate the world on adoption. And I thank you for listening today. If you are ready to tell your adoption story, please contact me at mindyourownkarma at gmail.com. If you want to know more about me and the podcast, you can go to my website, mindyourownkarma.com or find me on social media. Please help us and rate, review, and subscribe to the podcast. It helps get the word out. It helps others hear what really happens with adoption. As always, take what you need and leave what you don't. And always remember to mind your own karma. I'll see you next time.